Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Andrew Farnham. Andrew is the CEO of Seattle-based Variant Bio. Variant is a startup seeking to discover new drugs by looking under lampposts where not many scientists have looked before. And by that I mean, Variant is looking to sequence the genomes of people with exceptional traits. It's especially interested in finding gene variants in rare ethnic groups in poor countries where there hasn't been a lot of sequencing. This is a company seeking to bring the benefits of an exciting new technology to a wider group of traditionally underserved people. This is a classic example of where the rubber meets the road between science and society. If Variant is successful, it might learn things from the genomes of these people that could help improve health and well-being in these disadvantaged groups, but also these learnings might pave the way for new drugs that could help people everywhere. Andrew comes to this challenge after spending nine years overseeing the $2 billion strategic investment fund at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That gave him an up-close look at some of the most exciting technologies, the best biomedical entrepreneurs, and the classic challenges of how to broadly improve health outcomes in poor countries. He has thought long and hard about how to build trust with many different players to execute on a vision like the one at Variant Bio. Now, before we get to dive in, do you enjoy the Long Run Podcast? Maybe you're trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered group of entrepreneurs and venture investors who listen to this show. Tell me about your company and why it might be a good fit as an advertiser. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Now, please join me and Andrew Farnham on the Long Run. Andrew Farnham, welcome to the long run. Great to be here. So, Andrew, I've got to say, when you uh, sent me a memo um, back in, I think, August about the founding of Variant Bio, this new company, uh, you, you had a couple paragraphs. You said, and, and it really hooked me right away. You're talking about high science with you know gene sequencing and computational analysis. You're looking for elegant biology with human knockouts that provides some kind of protective traits against disease and it's all in a mission to serve underserved populations uh, around the world it's it's got global health purpose and then for the capper uh you mentioned that you're doing a pilot project in nepal <laughs> and it's like wow <laughs> you you really had me at hello <laughs> <laughs> given you know i mean a lot of listeners know i mean nepal i'm going back to my everest expedition of 2018 i mean this was a life-changing event for me and i'm i, I have a, a warm spot in my heart for the people of nepal so uh lots to cover here andrew uh with variant bio um but i think maybe you know li- like i like to do with this show let's let's start a little a little bit about you um where uh where did you grow up I grew up uh, actually around here in the Seattle area. I grew in, up in Puyallup, about uh, an hour south of here. Left after high school to go to college. Never really thought I'd be back in the area, but um, you never know how things are going to work out. A kid from Puyallup uh, in the exactly. shadow of Mount Rainier. Uh, wh- um, what did your uh, parents do for a living? Uh, my mother uh, is a pastor, uh, and my father worked for a warehouser, the forestry company. So the Seattle area... You know, back in the back in the day when I grew up, was uh, 
Boeing and uh, forestry were the were the two big businesses, and we were on the forestry side. Yeah, Seattle was a very different place then. This is yep. before Microsoft, Amazon, and Starbucks, and the whole tech boom. Exactly. Okay, so so you um, must have been a pretty good student. You go off to Princeton uh, in the the late '90s, and how did you get hooked into studying biology there? You know, I, when I started at Princeton, I had no idea uh, what I was going to study. I've always loved science um, and was trying out a number of different classes uh, and just took the molecular biology 101 and, and fell in love um, with, you know, what had already been accomplished and the potential that was, you know, even back then extraordinarily clear of, of what could be accomplished over the, over the coming decades. Um, and so they also had me at hello. Uh, and uh, it's been uh, it's been mobile ever since. Was uh, the genome project like in the news then? Was that part of the the backdrop? Yeah, the genome project was in the news. Dolly uh, was in the news. Um, so it was uh, both a, a hot area and and you know just as the same as today. It's amazing, you know, twenty something years later, uh, still in a period of incredibly rapid advance, um, which was which was really exciting to me. Okay. Okay. So um, then you go off to the Kennedy School. Um, how did your career take a turn there? Yeah. So I, um, uh, the Kennedy School was a little bit later, but originally I thought I was going to be a neuroscientist. Was uh, uh, studied memory um, and then did an internship in uh, Joseph Ledoux's lab. as a famous neuroscientist at NYU, and it was the perfect internship because it taught me this is not what I wanted to to do with my life. I spent. An entire summer uh, in a in a lab to doing memory studies and decapitating rats, uh, and quickly learned that I like uh, I like spending time with with people too much um, to have a career that was going to be um, focused on on uh, mat, rat and mice studies. So pivoted at that point to go into investing. I also had always loved loved companies and wanted to combine my interest in. Um, in science with investing. So went and spent some time at uh, Goldman Sachs and TPG um, investing around the world, spent a lot of time investing in the developing world, uh, which was an interest of mine, given some, some travel I had done. Um, coming out of that, the obvious choice that most people would made after a career at Goldman and TPG would be to go to business school. I didn't really think I was going to learn much from business school. It would have been a great vacation. Uh, it would have been a great networking opportunity, but I felt I was pretty well networked um, and I didn't really need a vacation. So I wanted to study something something different. After having spent a lot of time investing in the developing world, I'd seen the issues there and really wanted to understand the question of why are some countries poorer than others. So went back to the Kennedy School and studied uh, international development economics. So you just, uh, what was it about investment banking that, uh, you know, didn't really resonate for you or made you think that this just wasn't what you wanted to do long term? Yeah, I mean, invest, I was in investment banking in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was go-go time and I, I learned an absolute ton. I wouldn't change, change my, um, my career there, trade my career there for, for anything. Um, but I didn't feel like I was having any impact with my life Uh I always say I was sort of helping rich people get slightly richer, wasn't advancing science, uh, wasn't creating anything. Um, and so I was looking for an opportunity where I could make a, a bigger difference. Which So I was looking for a, a potential career change, went to the Kennedy School, and then it ended up um, working out well because coming out of that, I was able to, to find myself at the, at the Gates Foundation after a while, um, combining my interest of investing in science and molecular biology and biotech, uh, and it all began to come together. 
but it was international development in particular, right, at the, at the Kennedy School that that kind of set the stage for you to go to the Gates Foundation? Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so you moved back to Seattle, um, but wasn't there, didn't you spend some time over in London for, for a bit? Yeah, I skipped, uh, I skipped a, coming to, out, of, um, out of school. I went to London. There was a foundation um, started by a hedge fund, a guy named Chris Hahn, who's an amazing person, launched a hedge fund. And from the very beginning, he said, I want the value that's created by this hedge fund to help global health issues in the, in the developing world. So he set up the hedge fund from the very beginning, such that a, a percentage of its, uh, of its profits, both the management fee and carry, would go into an affiliated foundation focused on uh, global health issues in the developing world. Um, and then his hedge fund ended up being one of the most successful in Europe. It's still around today, TCI. Um, so the foundation ended up with, um, I think now it's about five billion U.S. dollars, uh, which shows the the value creation that can occur um, in these hedge funds. And given his uh, his background in business, he was very focused on how can we form partnerships with with the private sector, with biotech companies and other companies to advance global health goals. Um, in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, which is where that foundation was focused. So I helped him um, launch that work uh, with some with some partnerships with with private sector companies, and then the Gates Foundation. Um, about the same time, Julie Sunderland uh, was launching a similar program um, to do the same thing. The Gates Foundation at that time was thinking we need to have additional tools in our in our toolkit. We can't just give grants to nonprofit organizations um, like foundations typically operate. If we're going to develop life-saving drugs, vaccines, therapeutics, we need to partner um, with biotech because that's where innovation is happening. That's where some of the, uh, the best people who have um, the skill sets necessary to develop drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics, um, that's where new technologies are being developed. So the Gates Foundation decided it needed to have a way to partner with biotech to advance its goals and so set up a program um, and that gave me an opportunity to do combine my my loves in uh, investing and biotech and molecular biology, and so and to be back in the Seattle area. So I jumped at the chance in, in 2010. Um, yeah, by this and, time, uh, I mean that that foundation. really sounds like almost a perfect <laughs> resume to come to the Gates Foundation and get to work on. Um, I guess they called it the program related investments at the time that Julie exactly. um, was getting set exactly. up. It was, it was both grants uh, to traditional kind of academic scientists, but then also this this new piece with equity investments in biotech companies. If you're going to run through the continuum of basic science to applied science that you know is necessary to have impact, right? I mean, that, that's kind of how you yeah. were thinking about things. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, you know, the foundation and, and still to this day has a a huge grant portfolio, both to for-profits and, and non-profits. And that's the, the main way it, it does business. And that's, you know, is very impactful and they get a lot of amazing work done. So, so you were there for like nine, 10 years? 10 years. Yep. I mean, a lot happens in that amount of time. Uh, but how would you summarize? Like, what was that experience like for you? It was, uh, it was amazing. It was, uh, you know, uh, the highlight of my, my career so far. It was 10 years as we, we launched this program as a $400 million pilot program uh, at the Gates Foundation. That was what was great about the Gates Foundation. You could do a $400 million pilot to figure out, could we, could we do form partnerships with biotech companies and gain access to their technologies to advance the foundation's charitable and, and strategic goals? Um, and then uh, we were able to, to demonstrate uh, a significant amount of success. It became a, a whole new pipeline of uh, 
uh, partners in technology for the foundation where and now is a whole a, a new uh, pond to fish in. So now we could gain access to you know, the cutting edge technologies that were coming out of Boston um, and the Bay Area, companies that were developing new uh, drug and vaccine platforms over the last 10 years. You know, typically, if left to their own devices, these companies very naturally will focus on the, the diseases of the West, um, immuno oncology, obviously diabetes, um, because that's where uh, that's where they have the prospect of earning a financial return. But we looked at a lot of these companies and said, you know what? This underlying platform, uh, if applied to TB, could lead to breakthroughs in TB drug development or malaria vaccine development um, or HIV diagnostic development, whatever it might be. So we went to these companies and effectively said, let's make a deal. We'll, we'll invest in your Series A, your Series B round. We'll write a significant check. Um, we'll give you the capital you need to advance your programs and advance your platform. In exchange, we're not going to try and turn you into a, a charity. Uh, we want you to, to thrive we want you to continue working on your core programs um, and make as as uh, much money as you as you can focused on um, your core programs, which may be you know oncology in the West. But we also want access to your platform, so the Gates Foundation or our partners, the foundation's partners, could use it for uh, HIV, TB, and malaria. And most companies said, you know what, this is a this is a great deal. We get a, a, a an amazing partner in the Gates Foundation. We get access to capital. Um, and they gave up access to their platform for uh, malaria or TB, which aren't areas they were going to focus on anyway. And from the Gates Foundation, it was an amazing deal as well, because now we had access to these cutting edge technologies being developed um, for our priority diseases, access that we wouldn't have otherwise if it weren't for the partnerships we were forming through these investments. So it was really win-win. We were able to make um, dozens and dozens, 80 some of these investments committed well over $2 billion um, across investments of, of different type and, and really gave the foundation a, a whole new way of, of doing business to complement its traditional grant approach. You know, and as Julie, a previous guest on this show, had pointed out, you know, oftentimes you would get a, a board observer seat on one of these companies and, and really kind of hanging around and making sure that, hey, hey uh, company, uh, don't forget <laughs> about this yeah. thing that you know, you're, you're supposed to be doing too. Um, so, um, so you get exposed, uh, to a lot of different companies, drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, lots of entrepreneurs with bright ideas and, and, you know, big, um, health problems that they're attempting to solve. Uh, some I'm sure that you like and, and, and some, you know, not so much. Can you tell me a little bit about variant bio when this one came across your desk at Gates Foundation? What, what really stood out for you about this one? Yeah, so you know, uh, the time at the Gates Foundation, we were lucky enough to be able to make investments in some companies that were really changing the world. I mean, if you look at the portfolio of investments um, that we made, we invested in uh, Veer and BioNTech and CureVac, uh, and I, you know, had um, uh, board roles in, in some of those companies and got to watch them. Um, uh, with the front row front row seat, and as we uh, supported them, and you know from the very beginning of of a lot of those companies, and helped them grow, and I saw the impact that they were having. Um, and frankly, uh, to be honest, I was a little bit jealous of life inside a uh, a small biotech. I had spent my career. Um, up to that point that we just walked through working in large investment organizations, you know, Goldman Sachs, TPG, Gates Foundation, all wonderful, high performing organizations, um, but also uh, large um, 
and you know with uh, matrixed uh, cross-functional team and meetings and and things of that nature and a step removed a step removed exactly so i had a, an entrepreneurial itch and i saw the impact um, that could could come from the confluence of bringing great people uh, and capital and science together in a in a startup biotech so i started keeping my eye out for um biotech that had those properties and also had a mission um, and a scientific approach and, and people that I, I could believe in. So Varian actually didn't come across uh, to the foundation as a company we were um, considering in, investing in, but I, I heard of it otherwise and, and fell in love again with the, with the people uh, and the science and the potential impact and, and so decided to make the move. Okay. So how did you hear about it? It was a classic uh, recruiter call, Bill Holodnik, who many people may know, um, I think one of the best uh, recruiters in the business I had known. We had used him at the at the Gates Foundation um, uh, a few times, and he uh, he reached out to me when he saw Variant and said, you know what, I think this could be a a perfect uh, a perfect fit for you, given um, it's science and it's uh, we'll get to it, but it's uh, the requirement of Variant in order to succeed, we need to be able to form partnerships um, with groups all around the world in the developing world and in the U S and, and that's what I, you know, effectively was doing at my time at the Gates foundation, figuring out how to marry, um, uh, the world of biotech in, in Boston and, and San Francisco with the world of, um, you know, having impact in places like Bangladesh and India and, and sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and that was also needed at Variant Bio. We needed to be able to perform as a for-profit, biotech um, company with you know VC backed investors and a business plan where we think we're gonna uh, we're gonna create a lot of financial value but also doing it in a way where we're working appropriately with uh, with populations around the world and ensuring um, they're uh, treated appropriately and, and can benefit as well okay well I want to get there and ask you about the business model and how you want to set this up a little bit differently than what we've seen in the past but you know I, I kind of summarized this at the top of the show but how about how would you describe the, this vision. What, what's the big idea here for Variant Bio? Yeah, the big idea is you know a, a different way to do genomic drug discovery. Uh, we think it could lead to a revolution in genomic drug discovery. So you know, genomic drug discovery has led to some um, amazing targets uh, in the past. A PCSK9 uh, is obviously you know to lower uh, LDL is obviously uh, a famous target that has led to a couple uh, drugs that. Um, are now in the market and making a significant amount of money. There's several other drugs that have been uh, discovered through through genomic approaches, and you have obviously um, Amgen and Regeneron and GSK making huge bets in this area. Um, but we think we have a a real advantage because we're looking where others aren't. I'm sure uh, most people have seen the stats that. Um, you know, roughly 90, 90 some percent of the genomic data comes from Western populations. Uh, and the vast majority of the world's genetic diversity is found uh, uh, elsewhere. It's found the majority of the, of the world's genetic diversity is found in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there's a huge amount found in, in, in South Asia and other places around the world. And the number of detailed uh, genomic studies at scale that have happened in those geographies is is puny compared to the massive studies that are taking place um, here in the US and in, in Europe with um, uh, with organizations like the UK Biobank or or Finjen. So 
by combining cutting edge genomic analysis capabilities and a platform which we have, which is specifically designed for for uh, studying um, bottlenecked or uh, highly consanguineous populations in the developing world. Um, that cutting edge platform combined with simply looking where others aren't putting together studies in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and the South Pacific, um, we think we'll, we'll be able to therefore find genetically validated drug targets um, that others won't, uh, won't be able to with their current approaches um, and therefore with these genetically validated targets uh, result in some, um, in some su- successful drug discovery and development programs. So there's a crucial um, social aspect, a participatory aspect. You need to get these um, diverse populations from around the world to work with you, to provide their samples, to allow themselves to be sequenced. So there's that. Uh, I want to come back to that in a second. But can we talk just a little bit about the technology first? I mean, to to nerd out a little bit, um, because, um, you know, there there are different ways you can uh, interrogate the genome. You could look for whole genomes. You can scan the exome. You could do some kind of genotyping of regions. But you guys have something different going on. How would you describe this? That, that enables you to, to, to really, you know, get a good, rich data set, but at a, uh, you know, a, a lean and mean low price point. This is uh, a little oversimplified, but what most people are doing is they're saying we're looking for rare variants with large effect sizes, um, on disease. So that they, those lead to the best uh, drug targets can really make a difference. There's a lot of uh, GWAS studies out there that uh, are finding a large number of variants with small effect sizes. Those aren't really going to move the needle um, and result in drug targets. What people are looking for, what's really going to move the needle are these rare variants with very large effect sizes um, that can lead to, to new therapeutics. So what most people, since they're looking for rare variants, what they do is they say to have the statistical power, we need to sequence hundreds of thousands or millions of individuals. So you see these very large partnerships that pharma is putting together with hospital networks where they sequence everyone who walks in the door and try and get as much data as possible. Or uh, the G- GSK deal with 23andMe, uh, where they're getting access to the the data that comes from all the people who have spit in the tube and, uh, and sent their information to, to 23andMe. And we think that approach will work, but it's incredibly expensive um, and slow. And uh, to do these studies right, you have to have really high quality genomic data, but you also have high quality phenotype data because you're looking for associations between the genome and and phenotype. Um, And it's really hard to get high quality, consistent phenotype data across hundreds of thousands or millions of of individuals. So we say, let's take a different approach. Instead of sequencing uh, random people who walk in the door, let's do a lot of work up front to look for populations who have the ideal genetic architecture for drug discovery and that have a phenotype that means we're likely to find something interesting. So we look for two things. We look for extreme outlier phenotypes, populations that have either a very high rate of a, of a particular disease or that seem to be protected from a disease, have almost um, uh, no presence of a particular disease in that population. And then we also look for uh, look at, on the uh, genetic side and look for uh, populations with the ideal genetic architecture for drug discovery. So that means um, they've either gone through, likely they've gone through a bottleneck or have been isolated for some period of time. So variants that are rare globally can be found at a much higher level in, in those populations, or they're highly consanguineous populations, meaning they have a lot of in um, first cousin marriage in those populations, which also can lead to 
what otherwise would be rare variants or very rare um, homozygous knockouts where an individual has two of the same um, rare gene, um, uh, two copies present. That's incredibly rare in outbred populations. It's much more common in uh, highly consanguineous populations. So by doing that work up front, um, we can identify these populations uh, that have this ideal genetic architecture. And that allows us to have the statistical power to find these associations of rare variants with much smaller sample sizes, uh, a few thousand individuals rather than hundreds of thousands of individuals. Um, and that's a huge competitive advantage if you have the ability and the skill set to identify these populations and to uh, form partnerships um, with these communities. And so we've built the company with, from the ground up, first and foremost, um, to have the uh, population genetics expertise to be able to identify these populations, and then the anthropological and deal-making expertise to be able to um, form partnerships with them that are win-win, are where we can, we can benefit, but we also think it's incredibly benefit uh, important when working with populations around the world that they, they benefit from these studies as well. And we, we can get into that. We've designed an approach to ensure that uh, our partners benefit from these studies, um, not just variant bio. If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you will love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and get ahead of the curve. It's a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. You can also try it out for $55 for three months or just $20 for the first month. Discounts are available for groups. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get your subscription today and get ahead of the curve. And are you a fan of the Long Run Podcast? Trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and adventure investors who listen to this show religiously? Ask me about advertising opportunities. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. So you, you start with the phenotype. I mean, the phenotype is telling us something. Uh, like the, there's a population there in Colombia that uh, gets early Alzheimer's. There are exactly. groups in Pakistan that um, are at higher risk of heart disease. Um, and we've been able to work downstream to the, to the genome, or upstream, I guess, <laughs> to the genome and see actually there's, there's something perhaps going on there. Um, and, and then, okay, you, you can, you know, it, as you say, reach out to these, these groups. If you can get, you know, a large number of them, a few hundred or a few thousand to participate, you, you can get a highly statistically significant signal that, okay, here's a new drug target. That, that could be generalizable across the population, across the world. That, that's exactly right. And then to get to the technology, the question you, you asked, we have a technology platform, both the genomics and a phenotyping platform that is specifically built for these types of, of studies. So um, what it allows us to do is uh, we do whole genome sequencing. So we have the highest quality genomic data for all of these studies. And what we do is we do deep sequencing, 30 times sequencing for a small portion of these populations to uh, create what's called a reference panel, basically a map of uh, the genome um, in these specific populations. And then we can do low pass sequencing, still hold genome sequencing, but instead of sequencing um, uh, everything an average of, of 30 times, it's done um, at a much lower rate than that. Uh, 
Uh, and our technology platform allows us, even with this low-pass sequencing combined with this reference panel that we've built, um, to be able to identify all of the novel variants, almost all, 95-plus percent of the novel variants um, in, these, uh, in these populations at 20% of the cost of doing deep sequencing on, on everyone. So we get very high-quality whole genome data um, from these populations at a fraction of the cost, an order of magnitude, um, smaller cost than these studies are being done by others because of this combination of doing the legwork up front um, to be able to identify populations that have this ideal genetic architecture. So you have the statistical power uh, at smaller sample sizes combined with our platform, which allows us to uh, lower the cost of whole genome sequencing um, by using low-pass sequencing really gives us a, a competitive advantage. Are and you then, using the standard Illumina platform? Yes, we use that. It's in the it's in the analysis, um, but the sequencing is a is a is a commodity, and we use we use Illumina like uh, like everyone else. Um, okay. Combined with some with some long read sequencing to find structural variants, uh, which is uh, which is an important aspect uh, as well. Long read being pack pack bile exactly. On the phenotype side, I mean, this is what's just as important is, and I think a, a big advantage of our approach is that the genomic data uh, is not useful to you if you don't have very high quality phenotype data to find the associations between genome and, and phenotype. And if you think about it, um, if you're sequencing random individuals who walk into a hospital, getting high quality um, uh, and relevant phenotype data from those individuals is very difficult. Number one, because you're trying to get consistent data across hundreds of thousands of individuals. And two, you don't know what you're looking for. If you take our approach and we've identified a phenotype up front, and we know that we're likely to find something relevant to kidney disease, and we're only working with a few thousand individuals, we can do very deep detailed phenotyping on that, uh, on that population. We can add RNA sequencing. We can add urine metabolomics. We can add every last uh, kidney, um, uh, kidney uh, test that you, can, that you can think of. Or if it's an autoimmune disease, you do the same thing for autoimmune disease. So at the end of the day, what we have is much quality, higher quality genomic data because we're doing whole genome sequencing under like the, you know, the arrays that someone like 23andMe is using. We have much higher quality phenotyping data because we know what to look for up front and we can do this detailed phenotyping. Um, and we have the statistical power uh, to, uh, to find the associations given the, the genetic architecture of the populations we're working with. So we think this combination is going to, to give us a, a big advantage to find associations that um, others with the standard approach um, won't be able to. Now, what do you think you can get the cost down to on a per, uh, a per participant basis? Uh, on the genomic side, it's, um, it's, uh, a little more than a hundred dollars. Um, and then the phenotyping varies tremendously based on, based on the specific study that we're doing. Um, but also it's, it's across just a few thousand individuals. So it's very affordable. And, and so this gives us you know, another thing that really attracted me to the company is I've invested in a lot of biotech companies over the years, um, and it is very, you know, the companies will always have a business plan in the Series A that says we're going to do A, then B, then C, then D. Um, and I've effectively never seen it work out where they do A, then B, then C, then D. There's, there's always a lot of twists and turns along the way. And so, you know, that always has told me you need two great, two things, two key things in, in bi early stage biotech. Number one, you need amazing people who are going to be able to adapt um, 
when things don't work out and the experiments don't come back as they originally had planned and, and change course and come up with new ideas. And, and uh, that was the, the first thing that attracted me to Variant because the founding scientific team was amazing. Um, but the second thing is you need to have, you need to have uh, different shots on goal. And with our approach, um, we can do these studies because of the small sample size, because of our platform, these studies are a million dollars each and we can get them done in a matter of months. Um, so we find these interesting populations. We can move quickly, get these studies done. If we find, uh, if we get an amazing genetically validated uh, target coming out of it, wonderful. And that's what we're seeing to date. If we don't, um, you know, we haven't bet the company on yeah. any one project. As an investor, this this reminds me of like, you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail cheap. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly the goal. Fail fast and fail cheap. Um, and we have the ability to do these projects all around the world in a number of different areas. And I think we'll uncover a lot of interesting novel biology with this approach. And we don't need every single one of them to work. So, you know, one way my vision of what this looks like five years from now is, you know, Decode, which is obviously an amazing story. And they they were all geniuses and they were literally decades ahead of their time. But they are looking in Iceland. And if they found, if there's a genetic, interesting genetic variant that could result in a new uh, drug target that could lead to a life-saving therapeutic in Iceland, you know, they would find it. Um, but if it wasn't in Iceland for whatever reason, um, they weren't going to find it because they're looking in Iceland. We're going to have the ability with advances in technology and with our approach um, to launch projects um, in dozens of different geographies around the world. And in some, we'll find something that's going to be valuable and uncover novel biology and, and lead to new life-saving therapeutics. In others, we, we won't. Um, but we'll be able to spread our bets across um, many different studies, which I think is important in biology because it's, it's so complex and you never, know, you never know what you're going to find. Now, a lot of the scientifically-minded people that would listen to this show are probably thinking, wow, if you could find more targets like PCSK9, uh, th those rare variants that offer some kind of major therapeutic benefit, um, that would be amazing. Uh, but um, in order to, to do this, um, you need to uh, build trust. You need to get these participants to work with you whether they are, um, you know, like a, a remote tribe somewhere in the Andes in Colombia or the Sherpa people in the Himalayas of Nepal, uh, who um, famously are quite strong at high altitude. <laughs> uh, maybe that tells us something about, you know, their, their blood system or, or, or perhaps for the rest of us for blood diseases. H how do you think about that, that social piece, um, getting people to work with you who, who may not necessarily have a reason to um, trust people who want to, you know, take all their DNA data. I think it's, it's incredibly important. Um, and this company was founded um, with this ethics first approach, because we know without that, we're never going to be able to put these, these partnerships in place um, and, you know, be considered a, a strong partner for genomic studies of this type. And without being able to put these partnerships in place and without having communities around the world to work with us and, and benefit from um, these programs so that uh, they testify to the next group that this was a, a good experience for them and they, and they, they benefit from it and they recommend that other groups do the same. Um, we're never going to succeed because, you know, everything I just walked through you through of looking at these extreme outlier populations and doing genomic studies of this type, you know, this has been done before. You know, PCSK9 is a, a very, is a classic example that was, you know, uh, 
uh, decades ago at this point when it was originally discovered. But people haven't gone around the world and done additional uh, outlier studies of this type at scale because they just haven't had the ability to to put together partnerships of this type or haven't gained the trust um, of, of communities around the world. So we knew um, when launching this company that we needed to uh, lead with an ethics first approach, with a benefit sharing approach so that uh, the partners, um, the communities around the world who are ideally suited for, for studies of this type and who haven't um, uh, that haven't had their uh, their genomes analyzed before would would want to work with us. And you know, sadly, there is a history of studies uh, in a lot of indigenous populations or um, other populations around the world that that haven't gone well. Where researchers have have come in, um, done studies, gathered the data, got a bunch of samples. You know, it's called helicopter science. They fly out. Uh, the communities never hear from them again. Uh, they don't get the data. They don't benefit from that. Um, and that, you know, very rightly makes them wary of participating in, in studies of this type again. And so we said we need to have a different approach. We need to have people who have who come in with the um, capabilities of, of putting together partnerships anywhere in the world if this approach is going to succeed. And then we also need to have a uh, ethical framework and a benefit sharing framework to ensure that uh, our partners um, benefit from these um, from these studies, and it's not just variant bio that benefits. Well, what does that actually mean, benefit sharing? Because, like, I when you say this, I'm immediately thinking of like the United States and 23andMe, and I mean, they're prop. I have not had it done personally because I look at the value proposition as I spit in a cup, I give you my genetic data. And you give me back something of recreational or entertainment value, basically zero. You you give me zero value, and I give you incredibly valuable data that can be packaged together and resold. Uh, however, so basically, it's like, it's like a way for me to make you know hand whiskey. No offense, I'll make you rich. <laughs> yeah. um, but but so you you guys can't just come along to the Sherpa or the people in Colombia or the Maori of New Zealand and say, "Hey, trust us because we're nice guys." You 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 have a framework. So you, you talk about benefit sharing. What does that look like? Yeah. So we have. Uh there's three different aspects to it. One is, is sharing the data. Um, you know, when we do these studies, we're creating uh, incredibly valuable data from, from these studies. We think it will be value, valuable for us to go finding, you know, new, um, developing new treatments for autoimmune disease that will benefit people all around the world. Our core business proposition is taking these targets, developing our own internal programs for common disease around the world. We're not looking to, you know, we're looking to treat disease that will be found everywhere, um, including in the, you know, in Western markets in the US um, and earn a, a return like other other biotech companies. But we're also generating data um, that could be incredibly valuable for uh, for the populations that we're working with, the communities that we're, we're working with, um, where they may be getting um, genomic data of of the of the community for for the first time that could identify it could lead to personalized medicine could lead to new diagnostics to um, understand the the prevalence of of certain diseases in in these communities and so that data is is valuable so we have a, a model where uh, we do two things we share all of the data that we find um, with our communities we're usually partnering with a local academic or or hospital and we don't just keep the data and keep it proprietary for ourselves we have a, a model where certain findings are um, 
are kept out of the public domain for a, a period of time so that we can move forward with our with our drug development programs. But uh, the data is immediately shared with uh, with local researchers and they can use it for whatever purposes they want. And then after a certain period of time, um, they can publish it and, and make it publicly available. So first of all, the, the data is shared. Um, and then second of all, we have a, a short-term benefit sharing program where in every project we say just for... Um, the fact that we're working together as a partnership, this needs to go both ways. So um, as part of the initial project, we will fund um, something that is of, of value to the community. So that could be a local education program or a, um, uh, a, water, uh, a water or sanitation program, um, which we're looking to fund in a couple of the geographies. So saying, you know, just for the fact that this is a partnership, we're asking for something from you, we need to contribute um, to the community. And then the third aspect is um, what I think is incredibly important in anything you do in life is aligning incentives with your partners. So we say we have a long-term benefit sharing program where we say if Variant Bio succeeds, um, that value will be shared with the, the communities um, that, we, that we partner with. So a percentage of our revenue and a percentage of our um, equity value of the company um, will be shared back with all of the partners that, that we work with. So if we end up taking um, this genomic data, identifying new targets, uh, launching drug development programs, and we have a, uh, we're either acquired or we're able to IPO years from now, a percentage of our equity value and a, um, a percentage of our revenue is, is uh, paid back through this long-term benefit sharing program. Um, to, to benefit our partners. Wow. So again, so, our, our incentives are aligned. They know if we succeed, um, they're going to share in that, those benefits in the long run. They actually stand to collect royalties. It's like royalties. It's done in a, in a simpler way where we are not um, simply wiring cash to the participants. Um, what we have them do is they'll identify uh, programs that are benefiting the local community, and it will go to those programs, um, which we think is uh, the right way to do it, rather than you know what could be um, a significant time in the future. It will maximize the likelihood that it actually happens to benefit the community if it goes to uh, a pre-identified program benefiting those communities, rather than trying to track down thousands of individuals to give them um, royalty checks uh, a decade from now. So this allows us to still benefit the communities, but doing it in a way that's that's tractable. Now, if if the um, if the real benefit to one of these populations is, say, a new drug, I mean, I got to imagine some of these people they're they're poor and they're thinking, you know, we won't be able to afford these medicines. Uh, if you come up with anything, uh, how do you get around that? Yeah, so it's interesting. Sometimes uh, with the populations that are uh, positive outliers, uh, you know, we could be developing a, me uh, a medicine that is sort of uniquely not applicable to them. It's applicable to everyone in the world, but it's a, it's solving the one problem that they um, a problem that they don't they don't have. Um, but in in many cases, you're right. Uh, we can develop drugs. Um, that will be addressing um, an issue that's found uh, in our in our partner communities, and um, uh, there, this question of affordability is is very important. This is where it comes back to my experience at at the Gates Foundation, where we developed what we called global access agreements, where we ensured 
that the drugs we developed would be made available at an affordable price um, in the developing world. And for partners who that were that's important important to them, um, we can put in place the same type of commitments to ensure in those communities um, uh, the products, uh, when eventually developed, will will be made available at an affordable price as well. Can you um, provide uh, like like a be- I know it's early, but like a beginning case study? Maybe it's from Nepal or it's the Faroe Islands, but um, what's a good example of what you're doing thus far? Yeah, so we have projects um, around the world. We have projects in the in the South Pacific and New Zealand um, with populations who have uh, high rates of different um, uh, kidney diseases, for for example, that aren't explained by the traditional, um, you know, the traditional markers of kidney disease aren't explained by the rates of diabetes or obesity or, or hypertension. And so we think there's something very interesting genetically going on there. And we have a study design that will allow us to to determine what that is. Um, we're looking at projects in the in the Faroe Islands. We have one in Pakistan. Uh, we have one that we're launching now in Ethiopia. Um, with a community that's lived for thousands of years in uh, one of the hottest areas of Earth and have extremely low access to water uh, and have some from some initial studies seem to have genetically adapted to that over the last uh, thousands of years. Um, and we're going to we're going to determine what's uh, what's going on there. Um Programs in Madagascar and South Africa. Uh, there's a really interesting population in in Chile that we would love to to study um, that we're working on that has lived in in an area where there's been incredibly high concentrations of arsenic in the drinking water. Again, for thousands of years, the, the over a period of time where there's there's enough time has passed where there could be selection happening uh, that could lead to. Um, novel variants rising to to high frequency, which allow, would allow us to identify them with um, with relatively modest sample sizes, and and we're looking to uh, understand why those populations are able to thrive and avoid disease despite drinking uh, levels of arsenic that would cause you know kidney and liver disease in uh, in a typical population. So there's a it's a big world out there with a number of absolutely extraordinary um, populations that haven't been studied because. There hasn't been a company before that has this combination of um, the genomics and phenotyping platform to allow us to to do the t- um, to gather the data and do the analyses needed to uh, identify these uh, these variants, um, combined with um, the expertise and a business model that will um, allow us to be a trusted trusted partner to these populations. My vision is that when any group around the world, when they're considering a um, genomic study, they think variant, I would, let's partner with variant bio. They ask who should we partner with? People say you should partner with variant bio because they have cutting edge technology. They have great people and they have um, an ethical business model and benefit sharing approach to ensure that um, they're aligned with their partners and their partners benefit. And so we're always the, the first choice when people are considering studies of this type. I'm glad you mentioned people because, you know, you've outlined the science, the, the, the technology approach, the business model, the, the benefit sharing, all that. But it really does, like, if you're going to execute on this, this is going to come down to great people. And I got to imagine that, like, even if you had success in a certain area, like, say, in Chile, that's great. But it doesn't necessarily, like, uh, scale all the way to Nepal, like you're going to need a, 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 a different set of circumstances, uh, different person, maybe uh, different set of local partners, different culture. Um, so you're going to um, 
How, how do you think about getting the right people, both on your team and, uh, I guess, the right local partners? Because each of these places is going to have, you know, uh, strong, motivated scientists. I know they have them in Kathmandu, for instance, uh, that you could work with. So um, talk about that people piece. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the two founders came out of Cold Spring Harbor and are, you know, uh, you know world-class uh, genomics experts and, and built the platform and, and the genomics platform and the phenotyping platform. Uh, and we're very smart from the very beginning to um, build out a team with the, uh, with the right people who can find these, you know, incredible scientific partners uh, that we've been able to find all around the world. So we have a team of biological anthropologists, cult- cultural anthropologists, population geneticists who have experience um, working with extremely high quality scientists um, around the world because everything we view is a partnership um, with uh, with different communities around the world partnership with the with the individuals partnerships with with the scientists there where we can um, jointly develop these projects jointly determine um, how they can benefit uh, our partners how they can how the findings could benefit variant bio by allowing us to, to develop life-saving therapeutics um, and move that forward so it's a team that's been built from scratch um, with the capability of putting together a partnership in um, you know from anywhere from um, a US hospital which has access to plenty of you know interesting outlier cases to working in Nepal or or Chile or um, or the South Pacific and we've been lucky enough to be able to attract a, an amazing team who, who has that experience and hopefully I can contribute for, with with my experience of again working with um, uh, by the biotech community in the US um, but focused on issues in the developing world so forming partnerships with with researchers in the developing world um, and we can do we can do more of the same at variant and your local uh, scientific partners I mean for example when you seek some of that alignment to, to create that that win-win situation maybe it's something like you know they get to share in the data and if they make a, a discovery they get to send it off to the editors at nature just like you know yeah. uh, scientists get uh, that's how they get their rewards that's something they want you're willing to provide that that's why it's critically important this data piece is so important we give our partners access to the data they you know the local communities will know how best to use that we give them complete freedom um on every what they can do uh, with that data to to publish it or use it to benefit um, the local community, and we haven't got into this, but it's also critically important in our business model is that we take the data and we analyze it ourselves um, with the goal of of using the insights that we find from it to develop our own internal um, drug programs. Our business model is not unlike many others to take this data and then sell it on to pharma companies, sell it on to the highest bidder. So that's another thing that makes us, you know, again, my vision of being seen as the best possible partner for genomic studies of this type. Our business model is not to take the data and sell it on to the highest bidder so you don't know where it's going to end up. Our business model is to, um, you know, keep it ourselves and analyze it ourselves and use the findings, but the data doesn't go on to anyone else. And that's incredibly important um, to our partners in a lot of communities. They don't want to do these studies and not know where their data is going to end up in uh, in 10 years. And we offer them the ability to partner with us, get access to high quality data for their own uses and know that um, the data that we have isn't going to end up in anyone else's hands because our, our business model is to analyze it, not to not to sell it on. But now for that to work, people need to believe that, you know, you've got good computational biology or algorithms that you're actually, it's not just dumping their data in a black hole or it's going to sit on a shelf. Like somebody is going to know what to do with 
it. Uh, because, I mean, I dinged 23andMe earlier, but, you know, to, to take the other side for a second, um, you know, if they had all that data sitting there uh, just in their uh, warehouse um, and it actually could do some good for Parkinson's, well, it, it actually kind of makes some sense for them to partner with a GSK or whoever, who, somebody actually knows how to develop drugs. Yeah, and that's why it's critically important for us to to build up. I mean, again, it all comes back to to the people to have that that capability within um, within Variant Bio um, to know to know how to analyze the data and use it and, and develop programs. So you're you're building up that capability. How many employees do you have there now? Uh, we have a, a dozen employees now, and are are rapidly we're in a rapid growth rapid growth phase. We're able to raise. Capital from you know uh, a wonderful set of partners, Lux and Alta, um, Alexandria, Kasdan. Um, so we're we're well funded now to to build up the you know the three teams. Our three teams are a team to put these partnerships in place. Um, then a genomics analysis team to uh, take the samples and, and data coming in from those partnerships and analyze it to to find um, potential genetically validated targets uh, and then a, a drug discovery team to, to take those targets and move them move them into the lab and, and toward the clinic and so we're, we're building up those those three teams uh, right now and and the long-term view is that this will become a therapeutics company that fundamentally that that's what you're going to produce uh, now what what kind are small molecules biologics all of the above? We're focused on um, small molecules and, and antibody approaches. You know, the ideal um, target that we are looking for is when you look for a loss of function, protective mutation against the disease. So that's the PCSK9. Um, and so then we'll, once we find those targets, we'll look to for the best way to to knock them down um, and, and move those forward. This is still a little ways off. I mean, you've got to really put that platform in place first and get those partnerships like, and really start feeding in a lot of data that your people can then analyze. That's kind of like steps one and two. Yeah, we're lucky in that we, you know, step one is get the partnerships in place and the, the, uh, the scientific founders were able to do an amazing amount um, with seed capital and we're able to get a number of those partnerships in place. Uh, step two is get the data from those and we'd have that coming in from our initial partnerships now and, and analyze it using, using the genomics platform. And we're, we're happy that uh, in our initial projects where that's coming in, uh, it's gone through the genomics platform and we've... Um, uncovered some new, some novel biology that we're very excited about that we think is, is, um, you know, has already given us some, some targets to, to take into the lab. And so now we're, we're moving into, to step three now. So, um, I was, I cannot claim any, um, responsibility for any of that. I joined, um, just earlier, just earlier this year, but the, the founders were able to get these partnerships in place so we can really hit the ground running with, with step three, step three. Now things are moving, um, moving quickly. Okay, so you you already have some novel targets and uh, some partners going to help you with chemistry to go after them. Yes, uh, I mean we're building up our own our own lab and then working with with CROs uh, uh, for certain experiments, like any other um, small biotech. So so yeah, I mean this is the advantage of this uh, of this approach is that if you if you look at the if you have the right partners. Um, with the ideal genetic architecture for drug discovery, it's just a few thousand samples give you the the power that you need. And collecting a few thousand samples and the and the phenotype data um, does not take uh, years and years and years. That can move that can move quickly. And so we've you know we've 
um, we're beginning to see that that theory play out. Now, when I look at your investors, your scientific advisory board, your board, I mean, I know half of these people or more. <laughs> I have, you, you've got a lot of people lined up to, to support this thing. Has, have any of those people like surprised you? Um, or have you heard any surprising bits of advice in, the, in these early days from them? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, what's, uh, I wouldn't say it surprised me, but one thing we've been incredibly pleased with is the quality of people we've been able to, to get on board um, with this approach. And we, we hear time and time again, this is an approach that is, has shown to work, looking at, you know, positive um, outliers uh, and you, as a genomic drug discovery strategy has been has been shown to work time and time again. I mean, it's, you know, it's uncovered some amazing um, biology, CCR5, for example, the Delta 32 mutation. Um, but no one has done it on a systematic basis and said, let's build the team and the technology to just do this over and over and over and over around the world. So we've been incredibly pleased with the quality of the scientists and, and investors who've come in and said, this is a, you know, now is the time with advances in technology and with the team that's been built here to just take this approach and do it at scale, do it systematically. So um, we're really excited about the, the quality of people we've been able to, um, to get behind us. Well, you know, even casual followers of the science will occasionally see these reports of, you know, the, the curious one-offs. Like I'm just thinking of that. There was a woman from, uh, I think, the UK who is in her 70s and, you know, has never really felt pain. Even even after giving birth a couple of times, um, it's, it's like wow. I mean, what is going on? Um, like there's there's a phenotypic clue, right? And can can you work down into the genome with her and members of her family or community and see what's going on there? Because you know maybe there's a new mechanism there for the treatment of pain. Yeah, that's and there's um, there's uh, that's uh, happened before. There was a company, uh, Xenon Therapeutics, who. Yeah, there's uh, incredible stories finding a, a street performer uh, family in Pakistan um, that were doing various various things that uh, a normal uh, most people would never be able to um, to stand, but could uh, uh, they weren't they weren't feeling pain, um, and there was some some novel targets identified through through that. So again, this is an approach um, that has worked uh, that has worked in the past, but. Uh, all the the pieces that come together, both the you know the ethical pieces, the scientific pieces, the team to be able to do this at scale and systematically. Um, that's what we've tried to build at Variant. It's a really fascinating uh, set of problems that you're working on and trying to put together. Uh, really interesting food for thought for I think everybody in uh, in biomedicine. Uh, Andrew Farnham, thank you so much for joining me today on the Long Run. Thank you. It's fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.